This is episode 78 of Cinescope, and Goonies Never Say Die. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Gene Goswer to talk about one of our favorite films, The Goonies. Gene, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Chad. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I recall, I don't know if I recalled you mentioning that you like The Goonies, or I was just asking around and thought, maybe Gene. So I asked you and you were very enthusiastic about talking about this and uh, we finally got together and here we are. Yeah, you know, I just assumed that you were somehow spying on me in my office at work because I have a Goonies poster in my office. Oh, do you? That is great. I do. (laughs) I've been wanting to talk about the Goonies for a little bit now uh, because there was a vinyl re-release or it might have been the first time ever release of the film score and I bought it. And I haven't listened to it yet. I've just sort of been sitting on it waiting for the right moment. But it is on this gold vinyl rather than the typical black. And it's got this great artwork. And I'm really excited to give it a listen. But ever since I got that and had it arrive, I've been really eager to watch this movie and to talk about it. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk with you. That's some dedication right there, Chad. Buying a gold (laughs) vinyl. Gold vinyl. It is pretty awesome. I'll, I'll maybe post a picture on Instagram or uh, Twitter or something. So keep an eye out. But first, how about you uh, reintroduce us to who you are? You've been on the show once before. Uh, who you are, what you do, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I'm Gene Gosworth. Uh I am typically online with Real World Theology, Real with two E's. And we like to examine film from a Christian perspective and dive into a lot of the themes and kind of see what it is that uh, helps us cling to certain movies so strongly. And uh, we like to look at it from a biblical perspective and analyze it in that way. Uh, I'm also a contributor to clearlens.org, where I uh, co-host a podcast on Christian apologetics and uh, all-around general movie buff. Great. And I did misspeak. You've been on twice. You talked about Toy Story 3 back in episode 26, and then Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was your most recent appearance for episode 63. That's so, right. Uh, we're, we're nailing down all the childhood classics, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, well, with that out of the way, let's just go ahead and dive into The Goonies. Let's hit it. It was released on June 7th of 1985, it was directed by Richard Donner who has a pretty eclectic filmography, it turns out. He directed the original The Omen, Superman 1 and 2, Lethal Weapon 1 through 4, uh, Scrooged, and this isn't really a noteworthy event on his timeline, but uh, Timeline was uh, a 2003 offering directed by him. It was written by Chris Columbus and based on the story by Steven Spielberg, And the music was by Dave Grusin, who, just a few highlights, also composed for The Graduate, Tootsie, The Milagro Beanfield War, which I've never heard of, but it won him an Academy Award, and then Selena. The movie stars Sean Astin, Josh Brolin in his first film role, Jeff Cohen, Corey Feldman, Carrie Green, Martha Plimpton, Jonathan Kihoi Kwan, John Matizak, 
Anne Ramsey, Robert Davi, and Joe Pantoliano. What was your first experience with this movie, Gene? Do you remember? It was definitely when I was a kid, and I'm trying to decide if if I saw this first on like HBO because my parents had a movie channel or HBO, and they also had Disney, of course. And I'm trying to decide if it was Disney or HBO that I saw it on, and we may get into this later, but there's one specific scene that showed up in the Disney airing of this movie that did not on other movies. So uh, maybe maybe my memory will be jogged, but I'm guessing I was probably, oh, six or so years old, maybe seven. Um, this movie came out in 1985, and I was three at the time. I definitely didn't go to theaters to see this. Uh, so I'm thinking I was about six or seven years old first time I saw it. Very early 90s is my guess. And have you always liked it? I have, man. From the first time I saw it, I was just automatically uh, drawn to it. Just the you know childhood adventure tale. And uh, typically, I'm thinking back on it with um, very, very good thoughts. You know, very great memories and uh, very uh, memorable scenes and great lines from the movie. And uh, every, when I watch it more recently, there's things I'm picking apart. You know, here and there. But uh, to this day, nothing has really overcome the nostalgia that, I, that I'm reminded of when I think back on you know, my thoughts of it as a, as a child, seeing it for the first time. You were a lot younger than I was when I first saw, uh, first saw this film. I think I first saw it in middle school, so around 2005, 2006 for me. Mm. Uh, and it was a friend who introduced me to it. We had a movie night at her house. I think we watched, it was a random assortment of movies. It was like Grease, The Goonies, and The Phantom of the Opera at the time. So wow. I, I don't know exactly what went into those movie choices, except I think it was just something that we all wanted to see. So... Uh, I don't remember specifics about that particular viewing experience aside from what else we watched, but I enjoyed <laughs> it. <laughs> I, I liked it, and I, I always have liked it, but sometimes I think I have a little bit of a false nostalgia for it because uh -huh. it's it's one of those movies from your childhood, you know, that you're supposed to love, but I didn't see it when I was, like, actually a kid. I was 14, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Um so I, I just don't have that that deep connection to it like somebody like you might, um, just because I saw it at an older age. And I don't know. I still love it. it. It's very full of adventure and companionship. And I infamously like to say, Goonies never say die, Mr. Frodo, too many times <laughs> while watching the movie nowadays. But But still, I can't help but think, you know, I was born seven years after this came out. So it was just a movie that my parents didn't introduce me to, and I was sort of late to the party. But I don't know exactly what I'm saying here, but I, I enjoy the movie. So you said your parents introduced you to it. Is this something that they saw when they were like late teenagers, or what was, what was the reason for them introducing it to you? Well, my parents didn't introduce me to it. I, I don't know if I misspoke. Uh, okay. It was with a friend that I first saw it at, at their, their apartment. My parents didn't really introduce me to movies all that much. They watched whatever's on the TV without too much discretion, uh, aside from no rated R movies when the kids are in the room. Uh -huh. uh, but I don't think this was ever something that was on their radar. They graduated high school in 1985, and so they might have been a little bit outside of the movie's target audience when right. it first released. And I don't know to this day, honestly, if they've ever seen it. So, uh, very. It's funny because... The age that you were when you saw it is about the age of the kids that, you know, 
Sean Astin and all these kids that are kind of the main group. Right. Um, uh, Brand, the older brother, he's about like 17 or so, maybe 16. Mm-hmm. Or just turned 16 because there's discussion about getting his license in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there is a target range, you may be like kind of smack in the middle of it for when you first saw it. But right. I remember when, when I saw it, I, I'm still looking up to kids that age, right? These are like teenagers that this is happening to or very young teenagers. And so I'm imagining their, the life that they have and this kind of freedom that they have over and above the freedom that I have to go just go run around the neighborhood or whatever with your friends. And so I'm really looking at it through that kind of a tent. And I'm thinking, man, that'd be so much fun. You know, this could happen. There's still magic in the world that children could discover this kind of treasure and go find it and all this. So I'm thinking of it when I see it as a child, I'm looking at it in that way. And so maybe when you saw it, you're kind of just jaded enough by life that you know those (laughs) things aren't going to necessarily happen to you. Maybe so. You know, like I said, my parents didn't really introduce me to movies. They didn't really introduce me to music. If if I was in the car with my mom, it was contemporary Christian music. If I was in the truck with my dad, it was uh, modern country at the time. Uh-huh. And it was in middle school when I got my first iPod and started exploring movie soundtracks and the Beatles and the Beach Boys. I, I was a weird middle schooler. That was what I was into. And that's when I also started exploring movies for the first time. So I saw The Princess Bride for the first time in middle school. I saw oh, The Goonies. I I started getting close. I don't know if I saw Indiana Jones when I was in middle school. And I had seen Back to the Future when I was around fifth grade. So that was a little bit before this era of my life. But middle school was just when I started absorbing pop culture in bigger spurts. And Mm -hmm. I think when I first saw The Goonies, it was one of those examples of a movie I knew was supposed to be a classic. And I liked it because of or in spite of that, you know, sometimes a classic, quote unquote, comes with unrealistic expectations and that can almost scare people away. And thankfully I wasn't, but it, it, it did color my experience, I think, a little bit. Now, what about the story? What What is there to, like, just about the, the basic story stuff here? The There's an interesting part to this that also comes with age in seeing it, because I think when you're an adult and you watch it, you have a much higher awareness of a bit of the class warfare going on mm-hmm. at the beginning, and definitely as it ties up all the loose ends at the end of the film. And so that's much much more apparent in the background of everything happening and motivations behind everything happening. So when, uh, when Sean Astin's character says Goonies never die, he's doing so in a bit of a rebellion to having to be shoved out of their home, shoved out of their neighborhood, shoved out of their town, uh, because they can't afford to live there anymore because they don't have enough money. The rich people are pushing them out. And so, as an adult watching that, you're very aware of those themes, like those social dynamics. And as a child, I'm just thinking, this is like a cool treasure-seeking pirate story. Right. The, the, the underlying motivations behind why they're going on this trip, you know them, but they're not what you think about right away. You're thinking about getting through all these cool booby traps or, or almost getting caught by the Fratellis and... and, and getting onto this pirate ship and, and all these things that you just imagine, uh, you know, you're doing as you play with your friends outside. You're setting up all these scenarios that are so very like what you're seeing on screen here. Uh, so the story element, I think, 
In other words, I think it can serve both young and old. Um, you know, you can certainly argue where if the depth is there or not to the social uh, warfare stuff. But uh, I think it, I think there's things there for both young and old to relate to. So I think that the story is is strong enough. Uh, whether it gets from A to B very strongly is is a different discussion. Uh, but I think the story is strong enough to just kind of be something that both young and old can enjoy. I agree. As a kid, you're definitely focusing on the cool stuff that happens in the tunnel, all the the adventure, pirate treasure, following the map kind of thing, uh-huh. and it it is sort of the class warfare stuff, as you put it, that drew me in more in my most recent viewing as an adult, just because that to me sort of strengthens their relationships. We get this great introduction, opening scene this car chase that brings us by each of the characters, introduces us to each of them and a couple of their little quirks. And they introduce themselves pretty early on as we first go up to Mikey's house and introduce ourselves to brand. And then in comes mouth and in comes each of them one by one by one. And you see that these are characters who have an established relationship with each other. They rely on each other rather than on others rather than on outsiders but mm-hmm. they see themselves as outcasts and as rejects because they are poorer than the other people and they are being kicked out and so this this class warfare is what's uniting them through this adventure the whole time because that's what they're trying to save is their friendship that's right they're kind of their own their own little gang in the goondocks so they they name themselves accordingly uh this isn't story necessarily, but something really cool in the direction of the film and the lighting, there's a lot of use of shadows and darkness to sort of keep this air of mystery as they explore further into the tunnels. There's lots of instances where there's like shadow all around except for a beam of light across their eyes. Like there's that scene when Mikey is giving his speech under the well and Mm. It's like mystery. It's airing that mystery, but it's also almost like, look at the possibility that I can see with my eyes in our future, like our potential future. It's not necessarily him predicting the future. It's like, look at this. This is a possibility for us if we just continue to push forward. And highlighting his eyes uh, seems to strengthen that to me. Does that make sense? It does, and it's interesting you point out that scene specifically because, uh, from what I understand, that's one of the two scenes that were actually directed by Steven Spielberg. Oh, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was reading earlier that uh, in Sean Astin's book, There and Back Again, he talked about how, in a lot of ways, it was co-directed by Donner and Spielberg, uh, yeah. which is a really cool tidbit when you consider shots like that and others that really comfortably fit into Spielberg's filmography. Yeah, there's a lot of things about this movie that that the way it was filmed that are a little different. Um, it they they filmed everything in sequence, so in other words, they didn't jump back and forth between the story based on where they were at, you know, to to have the most economical uh, filming experience. Uh, but they shot the whole movie in sequence. So as you see the movie and the plot and everything lay out, that's the that's the order in which they filmed it. I mean, that's not typically done. That's not the standard. Uh, way to do it so that is a little little bitty quirk about this movie that makes it uh, maybe all the more interesting i think that's really cool and i think that really lends itself to getting more genuine performances from the child actors Mm -hmm. you know Uh, just because they are experiencing the story as they're acting it 
rather than jumping in and out of the story and trying to fabricate an emotion or jump into the middle of a scene when they already filmed the reaction to that scene two weeks ago or whatever it might have been. Yeah, that's a great point. And especially for uh, child actors, um, it's got to be hard enough, I would think, for an experienced actor to go from one stage in a film to another stage, which require very different emotional reactions. Uh, It's got to be much more difficult for a child who's not as experienced and maybe doesn't have the life experience uh, to be able to draw from to to emote how they need to. So building the movie up thematically and narratively as it's supposed to go along would really help, I think, these actors and actresses uh, travel along with their character and learn as they go what their character is experiencing and and then in scenes like what you were pointing out, the wishing well scene, that that's a little easier to relay the significance of the choice that they make to continue on rather than get pulled out. I've really got to applaud Chris Columbus as well because he writes these characters with such uh, a sense of genuineness. We've seen Chris Columbus work with kids a lot. He he did the Mrs. Doubtfire. Home Alone, Harry Potter, the first two Harry mm-hmm. Potters. So when they were all really, really young and here he's, he's not directing, but he wrote the script. And I think that all the characters just come across, they, they jump off the page in a really believable way. We've got a real good cross section of youth at this stage in their lives. You've got Mikey who is hugely optimistic despite the the unrealistic nature of what he's trying to accomplish despite the fact that it's really unlikely that they're not going to be able to get enough money to not move out of the goondocks he's Mm -hmm. he's optimistic in the face of that and you've got brand his older brother who's the older brother and has to sort of not not be pessimistic but be a little bit more realistic about it say mikey i know this is what you want but this is what's happening and uh comfort him in certain instances when when Mikey is feeling down about it. You've got Chunk, who is this kid with the sort of penchant for lying or stretching the truth and being a klutz. And you've got Mouth, who's a troublemaker, who, funnily enough, gets his mouth gets him in trouble. And then you've got Data, who's just experimenting with technology. And maybe if there was one who sort of st- uh, doesn't necessarily fit the everyday youth kind of stereotype it might be data but even then when you meet his father later and see that he's very much into this sort of inventing thing it makes perfect sense that data would be trying to follow in the footsteps of his father so i I really like the the cross-section of the kids we get here and they all seem so believable and just the right amounts of naive too yeah that's a great point the right amounts of naive um and and i really like how they made brand even though he is is just a teenager, they really embodied him with a little bit of fatherly um, uh, tendencies, because like you said, he has to he has to kind of be there emotionally for his his brother a couple times, but he's also kind of the one that would have made them stay home, you know, would have mm-hmm. made them not get in trouble and go out exploring. Uh, they had to they had to trap him by his own uh, workout, uh, whatever you call that, the slinky, uh, whatever I don't know what it's even called. What Me he was neither. using to to work out, he had to trap him by that uh, to be able to get away. So he had he has this protective nature, which is a cool thing. Um, and then you learn, you know, he has he has a little bit of a love interest with with Andy, and 
and that continues on as like a as a subplot as as the as the boys are going along in their adventure, and so you're kind of rooting for them to have that, you know, sort of the underdog role. Uh, and he's also like a fatherly influence on his brother, and his brother brother really relies on him, and ultimately needs needs him uh, very badly to to be there at the end. And I like how you explain that. It's a really nice cross section of of young talent here in in the actors and actresses, but also kind of how they identify each one of them in their own skill set and their own little quirks. You know, you can. I think everybody's probably had a friend like Chunk or like Mouth that if you had met later in life, you maybe never be their friend, but because you <laughs> created a bond at such a young age, you're with them forever. You know, it's do or die. Goonies never die. That's a really good point too. I remember when I was a kid, the the people I called my friends and my best friends, by the time I got to high school, a lot of them, if not most or all of them had sort of drifted by the wayside because we'd found different interests and we'd moved on with different with our lives in different ways. Mm-hmm. But when you're a kid, it doesn't really matter so much. You you can be friend uh, a friend uh, as a sort of a jock kind of character with a sort of a nerd kind of character with this sort of more overweight klutz of a character. I mean, it doesn't matter so much as when you're when you're a kid and these kids all live in the same neighborhood together. They've grown up together. And so they, they do have that bond just because what they're doing in life, if you want to say that, doesn't matter so much. What matters is that they're together. Yeah. Yeah, they, sh- they share a... They share a home in a sense. They share, and that's what that's what kind of keeps them together is is their desire for their loyalty to their home, um, even though they'll all grow older and maybe and maybe drift apart. Uh, they're all from the same place, and so when you can when you can develop an identity along with other people for a place that you're from, and you know that's yours and that's theirs, and you share that in common. It, it can overcome all kinds of quirkiness between the group. Talking about each of the characters just a little bit more in depth, what do you have to say about Mikey? Well, I think you kind of said it. He's sort of the eternal optimist, and uh, you really love him for it at the beginning. He's He's got ultimate faith in his dad to be able to make this happen. He has ultimate faith that the plan to find this treasure will come to fruition, even though Chester Copperpot couldn't do it. Uh, he just has faith. Uh, he's a faithful, loyal child. Um, he's a faithful son. He's kind of, he's kind of the prototypical American son that, that every dad wants, you know, the son that's always going to stand by you and trust in you. And, and, uh, he's a good character to get behind. He's kind of the good, a good character to be the hero in this show, because even, even though you, you're going along with it because it's fun and you kind of think, well, there's no way that any of this could really ever happen, you kind of feed off of Mikey's optimism and you want it to happen because he wants it to happen so bad. So I think that makes him a very uh, relatable or or at least uh, empathetic character. I like that his optimism starts off as trust and faith in his dad, but then it sort of shifts with the discovery of the treasure map and the the possibility of this one-eyed willy treasure. Uh, it shifts into trusting in himself and in his friends. Like they're going to do this themselves. And that's ultimately what that speech is about in the well. Up there, it's the adults' world. 
and they get to try and do things their way. And sometimes they, they are successful. Sometimes they fail. And right now they're failing. It's their time up there. But down here, we have a chance to do something special, something unique, something that's going to save us. And so let's take our best shot at it while we're down here. It's our time down here. And yeah. so I, I, I like how he's always optimistic, but it just sort of shifts focus with the discovery of this possible treasure. Um, and this is a recurring theme with all the kids, but each of them sort of has a, a trait from one of their parents. And Mikey's is the character trait of always saying the wrong word and then being corrected <laughs> and saying, that's what I said, <laughs> because we see his mom do that a couple of times, too. Uh, yeah. I, I, that, that's a small character trait, but I, it's, it adds a lot of personality. I really like that. It is a neat little thing, and Data does that as well. Right. I don't. I, I don't know if that's from his dad or not, but uh, he and, he and Mikey kind of play off each other. I think when they say booby traps or booty traps. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing about Mikey. I also like the way he sort of talks to One Eyed Willie throughout, as if Willie himself is this present part of their adventure, and he's leading them on or giving hints to when they're on the right track. It, yeah. it, it's kind of corny in one sense, but in the other sense, it's really endearing that he is trying to follow almost this sort of muse in One-Eyed Willie. Like, this is the guy who's going to save their families because he left behind this treasure, and he's the one leading them to it. I, I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah, this is something that I think can have maybe a strong divide in how an adult would react versus how a child would react watching it because it plays off of Mikey's uh, optimism in such a way that the way he talks about One-Eyed Willie and the way he talks to One-Eyed Willie when they finally get to the pirate ship and speak to you know the skeleton, it's like he felt that fate was drawing him there and that, mm -hmm. like you said, Willie had Mikey in mind when he hid this treasure away. And Mikey just had to, over the centuries, eventually come to it. And it was always his for the taking that fate brought him here. And this is something that I think adds to kind of the magic of the adventure. That not only is it an adventure where you're discovering brand new things, but it's an adventure where you're discovering maybe something that's always been there for you to find. It's something that you were meant to find. And so it adds a lot more meaning to it. Uh, whereas a child may just get caught up in the adventure and the pirate and the treasure uh, hunt and everything. And then that final scene can just bring so much more meaning to it as though it was something that you were always supposed to do and you just now finally did it. After all, the treasure map was in his attic this whole time. That's uh, true. Yeah, I, I like Mikey a lot. I like Sean Astin a lot. And even today, as he was way back then, too, I, he, he has a lot of charm in a role from Mikey to Samwise to uh, I'm blanking on his character's name in Stranger Things season two, but I liked him a lot in that, too. <laughs> oh, I'm blanking on now, too. That's going to bug me. <laughs> I'll look at Boy, he was he was so likable in that one, too. Wasn't he? Yeah, he, he's so he's such a likable kind of guy. He's got a lot of personality. Moving on to Brand, we, again, we've already talked a little bit about him, but I just want to highlight one specific moment with him, and that's when, at the beginning of the film, before they've set off on their adventure, uh, Troy's dad, and I think it's Mr. Perkins, mm -hmm. and his associate show up with the paperwork signing over the property because they haven't had the money, all that yada yada kind of stuff, and everybody goes inside after the men leave, and Mikey sticks around on the front porch, just sort of 
ruminating and feeling depressed because this was just another reminder that, hey, they lose and tomorrow they're going to be gone. Yep. Uh, but then you, you hear Brand call him and he turns around and Brand comes up behind him and they just have this really sweet brother to brother hug for comfort. And they're, they're feeling the same things in that moment. And they're comforting each other. And I, I think that's such a special moment. I, I mean, I've, I'm a guy, I've got a younger brother who's three years younger than me. And I've had those kind of moments with my brother, uh, not because we were getting kicked out of our house, but there, there's always an opportunity for an older brother to step up and be the older brother and to comfort the younger one. And I love that he has that moment to do that. Absolutely. And, and it's such a brotherly relationship because there are those moments, but then 10 minutes before that, they were screaming at each other. And then 10 <laughs> minutes after that, they were, <laughs> Mikey was plotting against him to, to trap him and, and take off. So right. <laughs> such a brother relationship. Exactly. Uh, what about Chunk? Oh, you got to do the truffle shuffle to know what I think about <laughs> ch- ch- Chunk. Yeah. He's a, his character is really interesting and I kind of really only noticed this, not that it wasn't there or anything, but I only really thought about it, uh, on this last viewing for, for this episode, Chunk is separated from this group for, I think the majority of the movie, Mm -hmm. you know, they get to the cabin and once they get under the tunnels, uh, Chunk's out of the picture. He's, he's back with Sloth. And he is caught by the Fratellis, and he's being interrogated, and he has to go to the cops, and and he's he's really detached from the group, and I think that's a function of his character because he is so clumsy and he is so um, so quirky, I guess, that I don't think they could have got through the caves if Chunk was along with for the ride. You know what I mean? He would have yeah. messed something up. He would have got killed by a booby trap. Um, so <laughs> well, Chunk he- is an interesting character because. He's sort of limited in that way that he kind of can't be there for the majority of the adventure, uh, but he's able, because of his character, he's able to have this sort of side adventure of his own and, and, and develop a relationship with the person who ultimately frees them from, from the caves. Well, you, it, it's funny. He's such a clutch that before they make it into the tunnels, they use him to break things on purpose. <laughs> like there's yeah. the 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 very initial time when they're in the attic, and Mikey finds the map that's hidden in the glass frame, and he hands it to <laughs> Chunk, and then starts a countdown: three, two. Right. One and then uh, yeah, sure enough, Chunk drops it. It breaks the glass, and Mikey didn't have to do a thing except hand it to Chunk. And then later, you have Mouth sort of goading uh, Chunk into running through the door and knocking the door down so that they can get it back to the restaurant. And yep. then there's the same sort of situation with the water cooler. So th- they know what Chunk what what his tendencies are, and they use that to their advantage. But that also shows a certain level of usefulness. Maybe it's not the same kind of usefulness as Mouth, who can read Spanish, but it it's a means to an end. And yeah. then he does have that friendship with Sloth. It's it's to me that friendship is what being a goonie in this film is all about. It's about accepting outsiders as they are and building relationships with them. And you see how grateful Sloth is to be shown love and acceptance that. That that's something he's not used to. He he's clearly not getting it from the Fratellis. He was chained to a wall. Uh, yep. So I I think that Chunk serves a special purpose in this film to to almost in a way show exactly what being a Goonie is all about. Yeah, he certainly does. If not for Chunk, they would not have uh, stumbled upon certain clues 
But if for Chunk, they may not have ever made it out of the caves alive if he were with them. <laughs> right. And man, that, that scene where he's been asked to tell them everything. <laughs> he literally goes through everything. He goes all the way back to third grade and cheating on a test. And yeah. All, the 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 fake vomit oh that, that's so awful but yeah. that, that's some of the the funnier scenes of the film as well yeah so. and then this is another thing it's like I keep, I keep making this contrast between a child viewer and an adult viewer an adult sees that scene and it's like okay this is a huge plot hole these people are just sitting there listening to his life story why are they wasting all this time <laughs> but as a kid it's like that's hilarious he's look at him spilling his guts and yeah right what about mouth Mouth is a an interesting one. Um, I think that he's he's almost kind of the one kid in every group of friends that is gonna sort of try to get you in trouble, and he's gonna yeah. try to push the boundaries and and push every limit and see what he can get away with. Um, so he's a good one to have along for this adventure because because he is a little adventurous, uh, and he's got his set of skills. You know, he can speak Spanish and. Uh, so we can read the map and get them where they need to go. And, um, I mean, I think for, for all that Corey Feldman has done in his career as, as a young actor, I think this has to be one of the, one of the higher roles, at least as, as a, as a child actor. The scene where he's, uh, translating <laughs> to Maria. Yeah. The um, uh, yeah, that is very special. That is, <laughs> I don't think I got the humor <laughs> in that scene until I was a little bit older, but it does make me laugh all the time. But my favorite scene with Mouth is the scene with the well, again, the well scene. The well scene is just a great scene overall where he grabs a quarter out and he says that this was my wish and it didn't come true. So I'm taking it back. And that, that little mini speech he gives is sort of a tearjerker for me because this is this kid who may, maybe he did make a wish. Maybe he went and knowing that he was about to lose his home and his friends and was moving away. He went and made a wish because kids grab onto what they can to make things better. Uh-huh. And it didn't work. Here they are trapped in the bottom of a well, and the next day they're being forced to leave. And so to, to feel the emotion that he's, he's suffering through in that moment where he says, you know, this is what I wanted, and clearly that's not going to happen, so I'm just going to take it back, and I'm going to save all these other people from their wishes that didn't come true either. Uh, it, it's a tough scene, but it, I, I think that it shows that Mouth is per- someone who has a little bit of insecurity in his life, and I think that might be why he is the way he is, with the, the quick lips and the, the mischievous nature, stuff like that. Yeah, you really see kind of... You really see a lot about his character in that scene because before that, he is always the one who's like combing his hair back and playing it cool. You know, uh, he's kind of the sly kind of kind of character, and in that scene, he's just kind of putting it all out there. You know, he's really uh, revealing himself to his friends. You know how how in despair he feels over what they're going through, and uh, like you said, it's a very tough scene because. You know, in that same scene, like you've already talked about, you have uh, Mikey's big speech, uh, contrasting that with, with what Mouth says there. Then I think you've got, you've got the depth of each character kind of happening all in this one scene, and it really makes for kind of an eye-opening thing. Like, this is, 
This isn't just an adventure anymore to them. This is something crucially important. This is their life, you know, the rest of their lives. Whether they'll be able to stay together or not, this is what it means for them. Right. It's Mouth saying, this is our last night, and that's why my wish didn't come true. Uh, It's an example of my wish not coming true. But Mikey says, this is our last night. Let's make something of it and try and use this night to create more in the future. So it's it's a contrast between those two characters' sort of outlooks at at this point in the story. Right now, Data, <laughs> um, I love that every time Data demonstrates an an invention, the music, the score of whatever else is playing at the time is interrupted so that he can have his own little theme song. Yeah, everything stops. <laughs> <laughs> it's a ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. It's like this little heroic little theme. And this is 007 wannabe who is trying to apparently follow in the footsteps of his dad. And, you know, I I assumed in this viewing that the sort of Rube Goldberg gate opener contraption at Mikey's house was probably his doing, Data's doing. And I I, I think that is another example of how close-knit these people are. He's built this gate opening device for them, and he's got a zip line leading straight from his balcony bedroom (laughs) into the front door. So these are kids who are spending every day hanging out at each other's house. And so I I really like that. Yeah, Data's a really fun character. He's there's there's not a lot of depth to him, I don't think, until you get to the end with his with his father. And even then it's just a very short scene and you you just kind of learn more about the background of his character. He's not real deep, but he's but he's a fun character, and and just for the musical interludes is enough to to look forward to each one of the scenes. <laughs> and I do like that ending scene with his father, however short, however shallow in a way. Shallow as in there's not a lot of depth to it. Not uh-huh. uh, they they emphasize to each other that they're each more important to each other than their inventions. And I think that's a really sweet sentiment, seeing how all throughout the film, Data was using in- invention after invention after invention, some more successfully than others, um, some successfully, though not in the way he intended. And we see the same sort of thing from his father there at the end. So I, I think that's a, a really sweet moment. Uh, but you're right, there- there's not a whole lot of necessary growth from Data over the course of the film. Right. Did you have anything to say about Andy or Steph? No, I mean, I it, I hate to say they're kind of throwaway characters, in it, but it, it sometimes it feels that way. Um, Steph especially, she's just kind of there to support or or tear down Andy a little bit mm-hmm. um, for whoever her love interest is at the time, whether it be Troy or whether it be Brand. And uh, it, it feels like Andy is there to keep Brand moving forward. And mm-hmm. if Andy weren't there, then Brand would just tell his brother and his friends to cut it out and go home. Because Andy wants to continue going, Brand does too, and uh, so in some ways it feels like they're they're sort of just plot device kind of characters, uh, which is a little unfortunate. I think she has a decent scene where she sends uh, again at the well scene where she sends Troy's letter jacket up to him in the bucket. Uh, I think that's a that's a good one. Um, <laughs> you get the the screaming from Troy, Andy, you goonie. <laughs> so, and from that one, I get like this picture of of this town, and you have you know all these all these different cliques of friends, right? And you have these you know high school seniors or juniors or whatever they are, but they know about the Goonies, who are undoubtedly these like seventh graders in middle school 
but they're just this clique of kids that just do these crazy dumb things. But these seniors in high school know about him so much that he's like relenting the fact that she is now uh, in tied with the Goonies, and it's such a terrible <laughs> thing. He's hollering it out, so it it kind of paints a neat little picture of of maybe of maybe a uh, a kind of landscape of what's going on in the town and how how well these kids are really known. We see Troy a few times throughout the movie, and it's funny. The first time we see him, he's a complete jerk yeah. and ends up nearly killing Brand. Honestly. Uh, and then for the whole rest of the movie, it's thing after thing happening to him that that sucks. Honestly, the, yeah. there's the the sitting on the toilet uh, and it shooting him off into the ceiling, and then there's the the well. And isn't there, there's one more? I'm thinking. Well, I think that's just at the end. I think just at the end, he kind of gets told. Yeah, he's definitely the villain, but he never like. He never even comes close to like winning anything. I mean, the closest would be sending Brand off the cliff on his bicycle. Um, but he he never comes close to getting the girl. He he doesn't actually, you know, his dad doesn't actually get the land at the end. He he like you said, he gets shot up from the toilet into the ceiling. It's like he has the worst things happen to him in the movie almost. Uh, but he's definitely the villain. Yeah, and then as far as Andy goes, like I said, like you said, there's not a whole lot of growth there, but we do have that fun little scene uh, during the bathroom break where she accidentally kisses up on Mikey instead <laughs> yeah. of Brand. But that that's probably the, the full extent of what we really get from her. Yeah. I don't really have anything in detail to say about any other characters. I, I think Mama Fratelli is such a scary looking woman. <laughs> and the, the most terrifying scene for me is as she's sort of like grunting as she's striding through the tunnels there at the end as they're catching up on the kids. Uh-huh. Uh, th- that like evil look in her eye. Uh, and then Rosalita, as far as other characters go, that's who it was. I said Maria earlier. It's Rosalita. Uh, this poor woman just can't catch a break. The, for te- the, the the car chase at the beginning, she's caught at the crosswalk as a police car is all speed past her. And then Mouth's fake translation. My favorite part about that is when she just stares up at the attic and just sort of lingers there for a moment after he tells her that it's where Mr. Walsh keeps his sexual torture devices. <laughs> and she's just like in she awe, like just standing cross there. herself or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Uh, any other characters you wanted to mention or talk about at all? Well, we we gotta just give a, sl- a shout out to Sloth. I mean, oh, of course, Sloth Love Chunk. That's all I'll say. <laughs> and uh, that that famous electric company shout out. Hey, you guys! <laughs> <laughs> That's so uh, good. I yeah. I've been wanting to get a T shirt that says that on it for the longest time. Hey, you guys! <laughs> no, he's this. You, you talked earlier about a scene. Uh, uh, how they're using lighting. I think the scene where Mikey discovers Sloth is maybe one of the more terrifying scenes in the movie, but the way they used shadows to kind of hide uh, what was wrong with Sloth, like his disfigurement, mm-hmm. was really interesting because you could kind of tell like the way his head is shaped. You could kind of tell there's some some disfigurement going on there, but they really hide it well until he turns around and faces Mikey, uh, and then it's like the full-on effect in all the shadows and he's chained up in the darkness in the cell and it's like boy that's that's pretty scary if you're like seven eight year old kid watching this movie right but then i can't help but think that by the end of the film no matter your no matter what your age i think you've got to love sloth by the end you know he's wearing the superman shirt he took out the bad guys everybody's cheering along with him there's not 
necessarily growth for the character, but the way we see him from the start to the finish really does change a lot by the end. I would make a case that Sloth has the best arc in the movie. Yeah? Because he's chained up. He clearly hates his situation. He, I think you could say he hates his brothers, what they're doing to him. But when he has the opportunity to betray them and uh, trap them in the caves, he doesn't. He saves them. Mm-hmm. And he ultimately turns them over to the police, but he, he's serving justice where before they were mistreating him terribly. So he has, maybe it's not an arc, maybe it's more of just a straight line, you know, to, to justice or whatever, uh, sloth serve justice. And I, I think <laughs> I think the fact that they allowed him to save his family and turn them over to the police rather than like in some sort of a twist, like trap them in there out of out of hatred for them everyone would have said that was justified and like the way they treated him they deserved it but that's not what that's not the direction they went with him and i really liked that you know uh they i don't know if you'd call it growth even but i think sloth's decision there is is a big character moment for him and one of the reasons again why we love him you know i agree with you and it sort of reminds me of like quasimodo from hunchback of notre dame where it's this this beastly looking character but he's got a heart of gold and mm-hmm. uh, that that that's great that, that this character who's gone through something that could traumatize somebody and could cause him to lash out uh he doesn't and does act with kindness and love towards his family uh even if he they don't deserve it he he, he says uh, to mama fratelli on the boat or on the ship ma you've been bad <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to music, um, I don't think we'll linger on this for too long, but that opening chase music is an earworm if there ever was one. In fact, I mean, for me, it's almost the very first thing I think of when somebody mentions the Goonies to me is as soon as somebody (laughs) says the Goonies, that theme pops into my head. And, you know, for a long time, I couldn't think of what the, the composer's name was because it's not a super duper well-known composer, Dave Grusin to the average person isn't a recognizable name, but I, I really like that theme and the theme that we get during Mikey's speech speeches. I think the same music actually plays a couple times when he's talking to us. Um, we already mentioned data's own musical theme that interrupts everything else. And then yeah. the, the ship reveal that when they first come across the ship in the cave and then later at the end of the film, as the ship escapes from the grotto and is sailing off into the distance, we get that same musical swell. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff in this. It is maybe a little bit more dated than something in other eighties films, like uh, back to the future, for example, or maybe even like the, the star Wars or Indiana Jones films. They're dated in their own ways because they're fitting a period, but it still, the the music here is good, even if it does sound like 80s music in a certain way. Yeah, I think it strikes a tone of, of curiosity and wonder in, in the correct places. Um, and in the, the opening score, I think you pointed out well that it, it gets the ball rolling really quickly. And it really grabs you. I think you said it, it, it serves as an earworm. Uh, it really grabs you and gets you right into the action really well. And... Um, I think Data's music, when he's he's using any of his devices, 
I think is very noticeable. I think if you played that to me at any time, I would immediately think of data. Um, and, and like you said, it fits the tone of, of the decade, like in the eighties and kind of late seventies and early nineties, you had, you had this run of movies that really, um, really capitalized on specific notes to embody uh, feelings that you were getting during a scene, you know, whether it was discovering something amazing like a pirate ship or just doing some little fidgety little thing like dealing with a contraption. Just these little tunes here and there that, that composers are able to strike. I don't know how they do it. It's it's pretty incredible, but this is definitely has two or three really solid ones that you always associate with the movie. I do want to point out, too, that there's a lot of use of the Max Steiner theme from uh, Adventures of Don Juan with Errol Flynn. The first time we hear that music is while Sloth is actually watching it and in his room at the restaurant. But then we hear it later when Sloth appears on the ship mimicking that same scene that we saw on the TV earlier. And it's that same music. Uh, And that is from an actual film, Adventures of Don Juan, composed by Max Steiner. And that that that's perfectly fitting to seeing this character who is quoting the Electric Company and is mimicking Errol Flynn films, it's it's and wearing the Superman shirt. So he's a product of what he sees on TV, and I think a lot of us can sort of identify with that. That's right. Now to close out the conversation, what do you have in the way of relevance or themes that takeaways? Oh man, I think um, we've we've touched on a few of them. I think. Um optimism is definitely one of them i think uh i think you could probably say fighting against all odds so even when even when it feels like there's no way you can accomplish whatever it is your goal is or or whatever justice you're trying to seek out keep doing it because so so often the the learning moments are in the the journey to get there even if you don't make it there um i think that you know, their friendship in this movie, even if they had never found Willie's uh, treasure, their friendships in this movie were melded even tighter than they were before. Their bond was created even even greater than it was before just because they went on this adventure and shared it together. Uh, the fact that Andy and, uh, and her friend are now kind of identifying as Goonies, it's kind of showing the group expanding and, and allowing in more and welcoming in sloth and, and things like that. I think the journey is kind of the point of it sometimes. And I think that's something you can definitely identify uh, in this movie. What about you? Well, those final points you were just making are things that I was going to point out as well, where you have Andy and Steph, who Andy flat out says during that a wishing well scene, I'm not a Goonie. She doesn't live in the neighborhood. But at that point, they haven't finished the adventure. And by the end of it, she's fully accepting of being called a Goonie and fitting into this. And I would be willing to bet that previous to the film, Brand wouldn't really have identified as a quote Goonie, despite living in the goondocks. He's not part of this group of friends, but again, they go through this journey together. They go through this adventure together and they come out on the other side of it a lot closer and all sort of fitting the bill as uh, of what a Goonie is to them. And so I really like that. Right. I think the movie also talks or teaches a little bit about reverence for those that came before, even if just in a small way. And what the scene that really highlights that for me is when they finally find the gold on Willie's ship and Mikey leaves the gold sitting in front of Willie for Willie. And that's 
for what what that says to me is he's got respect for Willie's efforts mm-hmm. in acquiring it in the first place, and also thanks for giving his family and all their families a way for them to stay in Astoria at the Goondocks. It, it, it's it's a reverence and it's a thank you that he leaves that behind for Willie. Uh, so I, I think that's that's a really special moment, and it ends up being the Fratelli's downfall because they are selfish and want everything for themselves. So, right, yeah, that's a really good point. But then the the more obvious or on the nose ones, and that's not saying that's a bad thing. I, I think bravery, uh, pressing the way they press past every obstacle, from the Fratelli's to the booby traps to the skeleton of Copper Pot. Um, they have so many opportunities to give up or to give in to the situation, but instead they continue and they see things through to the end. And that ties right in with what you were saying about friendship. And, you know, the reason they are brave and the reason they need to be brave and the reasons they push themselves further despite all the danger is because is because their friendship is so strong that they think it necessary to fight to maintain it. And that's what this whole journey is about, is trying to maintain that friendship and to strengthen that friendship and hopefully by the end of it, be able to stay together in the way they want. And as you were saying, even if they weren't successful in that regard, uh, their their friendship is strengthened by the end of it. So they were successful in more ways than one. Yep. Anything else? I I think there's more we can draw out, but we've kind of, we've kind of hit it on... Uh on a few things here and there i think optimism is definitely one um fighting for what you believe in i mean they yeah. believed in each other but they also believed in where they were from and that it was worth saving and i think that's i think in this era of of film the 70s 80s 90s eras we saw a lot of hopefulness in movies and that hopefulness led to an adventure or it led to for fighting for something you love um and there wasn't much like negativity attached to it. Um, I think nowadays we might see a movie like this, and there would be perhaps a discovery that the Goondocks are actually really unfair, or there's some inherent inequality in them. And we didn't really see anything like that in in this age of film. It was it was all very much about hopefulness and uh, desiring to make things the way you want it them to be because you believed it was the best way um and not necessarily getting bogged down in any kind of a uh, uh inequality any kind of a message you know what i mean it'd be very easy to get it to turn this into a message film where it talked about income inequality and and the impoverished and class warfare and and all this kinds of stuff but it never really gets into those weeds. It never becomes a message movie. It's still all about the hopefulness and it's all about the adventure. And I think that's, I think that's something that's missing in film today, uh, that kind of tone. And I think it's one of the reasons I think that so many people look back on a movie like this with such uh, high regard and with, with so many great feelings about it is because it made them feel great. It made them feel hopeful and it made them feel like uh, there was there was meaning to even the littlest things like a friendship that you had when you were, you know, a, a young teen. So I think hopefulness is a big, big thing we draw out of this movie. Right. There's a very clear right side and a very clear wrong side. It's not like Civil War where you could make arguments for either Iron Man or Captain America, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
in in this movie, it's a country club that is wanting to expand to the point <laughs> of wiping out a neighborhood of homes. So, I mean, it, it's pretty easy to to identify the villain uh-huh. in this film. And so I, I think that's that's a good point that you've made is that the 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 journey and the end goal is wholesome in that they're literally trying to save their homes from a country club. <laughs> right. Right. Any other final thoughts about the movie? Uh, it's, it's a great movie to, um, I think, I think become a dividing line. So this is, this is a silly thing I do so that maybe everyone does this. I, I kind of hope everyone does this, but everyone has like those half dozen to 10 or so movies that you just love. And maybe they're movies from your childhood. Maybe they're really recent releases, but you just love them. And if someone else doesn't love them like you do, you just know you can't be friends with that person. <laughs> <laughs> they can't be in your Goonie squad or anything. Uh, this is kind of one of those for me. Like if someone told me they hated the Goonies, I would just like be done with them. Like I don't have anything to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, that's that's this is one of my dividing line movies i think i've got to ask have you seen the bob's burgers episode that is sort of a parody of this movie no i haven't i don't even think i know what bob's burgers is oh wow okay it's an animated fox sitcom and it is fantastic you need to go check it out but there's an episode in season two i believe that is called the belchies because the character's last name is the belchers uh-huh. uh and they go into a taffy factory and basically reenact a large portion of the Goonies. And there's even an end credit song sung by Cindy Lauper in the style of Goonies are good enough. And there's so many times watching the movie tonight. I was like, I can't stop thinking of Bob's Burgers. So oh, no. you, you need to go watch that episode because uh, Bob's Burgers is reverent of the material that they parody. Okay, good. Uh, and it, it's a good it's a it's a fun show. It it really is one of my favorites. But uh, uh, I just wanted to that. point out that it, I couldn't stop thinking about it in, in the best of ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I think that is the end of the official 78th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me, Gene. It's been a pleasure. I've loved uh, looking back on this movie. You gave me an opportunity to watch it again. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Same here. It's been a long time since I last watched this, and I always like revisiting a film like this after not having seen it in a while, because you do get that whole new fresh perspective of a a new part of your life and uh, trying to remember what you saw in it before and all those kind of fun things when watching movies. So contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast or at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to iTunes, rating and reviewing the show, even hitting that subscribe button. It's a big help with visibility. Also consider emailing feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Gene, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Wizard of Gauze. That's wizard with no A. I can be also found on Letterboxd. Search for Gene G. Uh, I am a regular contributor to the Real World Theology website, whether it be in uh, reviews or uh, co-hosting on their podcast, Uh, and I'm in the Facebook group quite a bit as well. So if you go to Facebook, look for Real World Theology, and go to clearlens.org as well. I'm a co-host on the Clear Lens uh, podcast, where we talk about uh, Christian apologetics and worldview. Great. 
The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And then there's my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talk about NBC's The Office, uh, episode by episode. We are in season five now, and it's going great. It's a fun show. You should go check it out. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And you can find all show notes and contact information for this show at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Gene. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Chad. We'll have to decide what childhood classic we tackle next time. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 78. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next time with episode 79. Have fun and celebrate movies. Hey, you guys. You can keep that or cut it, whatever you want.